The gist is brought to you by Betterment, the largest automated investing service managing billions of dollars for people just like you. Get up to six months of investing free when you go to betterment.com slash gist. Betterment, investing made better. The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Thursday, March 31st, 2016 from Slate. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Jacob Zuma, the president of South Africa, doesn't just deny that HIV causes AIDS. No, he denies that he has to follow court rulings, which say that you can't charge the country for millions of dollars in upgrades to your sprawling country estate. But now the highest court in the land, the land of South Africa, has weighed in, and they've said that Zuma must pay for all the upgrades that do not count as security. Here's the Chief Justice of the South African Supreme Court listing which amenities the average South African, per capita income, $12,000, should not have to pay for. The visitor center, the amphitheater, the kettle crawl, the chicken run, and the swimming pool. Now, if you heard their kettle crawl and your reaction was the same as mine, wow, Jacob Zuma has brought not just the taxpayers of South Africa, but the cows to their knees. No, we're not talking about crawling cows. Kral means corral in Afrikaans, and what a cattle enclosure it is. Here is an article from the Mail and Guardian inside President Zuma's Kawa Bunker. It is just after 8 a.m. as the sun starts to burn the early morning winter chill off the grass. President Jacob Zuma's cattle are led through a gate in a specially constructed underpass out of the main security zone, past the neat vegetable garden, up a paved security road, through an outer perimeter fence, past the newly constructed quarters for security personnel, and up the hill to their grazing grounds. The article quotes a cattle breeder as saying, A million bucks for something everyone else does with tree branches? I couldn't run my business that way. It sounds like a vanity crawl. Now, if Jacob Zuma wants to save money, I have some suggestions for him. Maybe you heard the chief justice listing some of the other amenities, and he said, the chicken run. Well, why don't you just combine the chicken run with the cattle corral? Chickens are birds. They'll scatter when the cattle's come a-crawling. Or maybe chicken run didn't mean an actual run for chickens. It meant the movie chicken run. Well, then you heard what else the chief justice listed. Amphitheater. You could play chicken run the movie in the amphitheater. Zuma will have to figure something out. His $186,000 a year salary is pretty good. It's fourth in the world, in fact. But the renovations on his house cost $15 million US. Or he could just pursue the cost-saving measure that he's most comfortable with, ignoring this court order too. On the show today, I spiel about Donald Trump's nonsensical answer that served to expose a nonsensical ethical position about abortion. But first, the history of abolition in the United States, often told through one or two characters. Well, I talk to an author who fleshes it out and talks about the many heroes who combated our national shame. When we speak of tech companies, we use words like disrupt. And disruption is fine if what you're doing is finding a cab or, let's say, an Uber. Disruption's fine if you're trying to tweet something. But when it comes to finances, your finances, there's a lot at stake. If you listen to the financial commercials on TV, they're always using phrases like stability and security and trusted. And they cite the number of years they've been in business. And I understand why. This is everything you've worked for. This is your whole life we're talking about. I mean, most of the reason we get out of bed and do anything is to earn some money to support our lives and we have some money in the bank or maybe if we're a little smart in some stocks in some mutual funds but we ask ourselves are we doing it the right way 
If you're like me, if you're like most people who are under the age of 50, if you're like a lot of people who are really comfortable with the internet, say listening to a podcast even older than the age of 50, Betterment's a way to take control of your financial future. It is a website, it is interactive, it has extreme ease of use, and it's established. It has about 150,000 customers. It's managing about $4 billion, and it can work for you too. So you can get up to six months of automated investing free and more information when you go to betterment.com slash gist. That's betterment.com slash gist. Betterment investing made better. You know, when we talk about heroes, it strikes me that there are a couple of uh, X and Y axes that we should use to evaluate heroism, right? One is the amount of difficulty the hero has overcome, and the other is probably something like the amount of uh, or the number of people the hero has helped. So, you know, I would say Martin Luther King is certainly a hero. I would say anyone who ever hit a big home run in the in a close spot is much less of a hero. But there are so many American heroes that have been absolutely lost to history, and it's almost a crime. And I was confronted by this when I was reading in the Wall Street Journal about a former slave by the name of Jermaine Logoon, who escaped from Tennessee, became a preacher in Syracuse, New York, proudly proclaimed that his home would be the home and would be a safe haven for escaped slaves from the South, rebutted the fugitive slave law of 1850, and it's estimated he assisted more than a thousand fugitive slaves. Now, what's remarkable about this guy is I had never heard of him before and that there are so many like him. The history of American slavery, even those of us who know or think we know a lot about it and know the names like Denmark Vesey or Frederick Douglass, there is so much we don't know. And just starting to try to chronicle this is an academic, a professor, an author named Manisha Sinha. She has written The Slave's Cause, A History of Abolition. She's a professor at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. Thank you for coming in. Thank you for having me. So we talk about abolitionism, but there's not one, or maybe there is one movement, but you talk about two great waves. Right. Uh, most historians or even lay people look at abolition. They look at the period just before the Civil War. That's and the time that worked. That's the time where Abraham Lincoln was maybe meeting with the actual people involved. Yes, that exactly. Makes sense, right? So they look at Garrison and mm-hmm. they look at William, you Lloyd, know, Garrison. The, uh, yeah. William Lloyd Garrison, etc. But I found that the antebellum abolitionists themselves knew that abolition had a lot had long roots and it had roots in the 18th century and so i uh, sort of went back to the revolutionary era and discovered this whole first wave of abolition a uh, lot of quakers early black writers who've been really neglected and ignored uh, i think in the histories of abolition what made that wave die down Waves have crests. I guess what happens at the end of the first wave is they manage to abolish the African slave trade, or at least agitate for it. Uh, it's abolished by the state in a, in a long, drawn-out way. And they achieve gradual emancipation in the North, which is the first emancipation in the Americas, the first sort of end of slavery in the Americas. Uh, and after that, they sort of hit a wall with the South. Mm-hmm. Their tactics don't work there. Uh, they're able to help escaping slaves. But most Southern states and most of the Southern statesmen uh, do not lend the prestige of their names to the movement against slavery as they do in the North. And in that, it sort of dies down. But I found that even in that kind of middle period, there were many abolitionists who sort of kept up 
the agitation and many of the societies that were formed continued. I don't want to tell this story, as I know you don't, through white people, but because yeah. we've lived in America, there are a couple of famous ones, and I want to ask you about William Lloyd Garrison. So his yeah. newspaper, The Liberator, mm-hmm. he was he's certainly most associated with the abolitionist movement. Did he have flaws? I mean, some of yeah. his critics thought that he was a little, not too intense, a little too much of a perfectionist, let's say. Right. Well, you know, Garrison has gotten a raw deal in okay. American history. He's always seen... Well, he's still on the right side of history. Yes. So how do you really, how do you mark yourself as an interesting analyzer of history by looking at William Lloyd Garrison and saying other than, well, obviously he was right. So then you try to find a flaw, but so right. this, this was this is what goes on among academics. Yeah, Absolutely. Yeah. You know, he you, you're right. He's on the right side of history, but also I think we tend to look at abolitionists as these extremists. Instead, we laud these kind of moderate anti-slavery statesmen who seem more reasonable mm-hmm. and logical. The abolitionists seem uh, too extreme and too fanatical in their views. And I think that's, um, that may not be the right way to to understand the abolition movement. I think you need to understand it as a social movement of activists uh, who were up against tremendous odds. So the anti-slavery moderates are able to win. Somebody like Lincoln or the Republican Party is able to come into power because of the ground that these activists have plowed for over you know, 30, 40 years. So yes, I'm sure you know Garrison was only human, as were many of the abolitionists. Uh, but as I studied him more, I realized how different he was from the caricature that has come down of this kind of uh, monomaniac, this kind of fanatic, this perfectionist. So uh, infused um, with the religion, the religiosity. That's the... Well, he was a bit of an iconoclast even when it came to religion. You know, he he kind of questioned the established church and it did lead to a schism in the abolition movement. People who were more conservative than him on women's rights and who were a little alarmed by his criticism of the state. This is a guy who just not only burned the fugitive slave law, but the U.S. Constitution, uh, which was a radical thing to do when most people thought that the Constitution and Bible are sacrosanct texts. He even said that if the if as the pro-slavery ideologues were saying that a literal interpretation of the Bible actually defends slavery, then maybe they should go beyond the Bible. And that really alarmed all the ministers. Did John Brown, who was very anti-slavery, but also a maniac and a terrorist and had terrible military plans to boot, so is doomed to fail. Did his association with Garrison hurt Garrison? Well, you know, Garrison was not one of those secret six abolitionists who uh, knew about Brown's plan. Yeah. He was a nonviolent. He believed in nonviolence. He was a non-resistant, which was an extreme pacifist. He rejected the use of force by the state, including capital punishment. So he he argued for a lot of things, but he did defend John Brown. Mm-hmm. You know, he's somebody's terrorist. He's another person's freedom fighter. And I noticed in earlier work that I had done on John Brown that African Americans had a very different conception of John Brown. They lost the white man who was willing to die for black freedom and start a slave rebellion. But his image in American history, in mainstream American history, was always that, uh, you know, the, the midnight terrorist, a person who wanted to start a slave rebellion. And it was a foolhardy plan. But most slave rebellions began as very daring ventures with tremendous odds against them. And that's what John Brown was trying to right. do, either spirit away slaves into the North or start a slave rebellion. His trying to start that showed how little practical knowledge he had of, you know, what the life of a slave was like. Well, you know, like many northern abolitionists, you know, he 
had not lived in, in, in a southern slave society. If you did, you would be tarred and feathered. You know, there was a price on Garrison's head. There was a price on Lewis and Arthur Tappan's head, all the prominent abolitionists. There were abolitionists who ventured down south and suffered, actually, mm-hmm. for their efforts. But what's interesting about John Brown is that he had contact with enslaved people, mainly fugitives. So when he was in Springfield, Massachusetts, he formed this all-black militia to defy the fugitive slave law. So you can see the trajectory towards the Harpers Ferry raid in 1859. He is also at Kansas, where he's helping slaves escape from, you know, southern immigrants who own slaves. In fact, one of them has a child, and she names him John Brown, after the man who rescued her and her husband. So he's had contact with slaves. Like many abolitionists, he's very much involved in the fugitive slave controversy. And you can see in the 1850s, beginning with the fugitive slave law, the so-called Kansas Wars, and then the 1859 raid and the descent of the Civil War, it's kind of a crisis decade where increasingly abolitionists are forced to rely on kind of on-the-ground resistance uh, to the laws of the slaveholding republic. Now, Abraham Lincoln was not perfect on slavery, but given that, not only as a human, there are aspects of his beliefs that maybe you could say is because he had to be compromised. All politicians Mm -hmm. have to compromise. But is he about as good as abolitionists could have ever hoped for from a president? Yes. And Garrison really appreciated Lincoln. Even even though they criticized Lincoln for his slowness to act or they pressured him during the war to act more quickly on emancipation, most abolitionists ended up supporting Lincoln. For Garrison, that was the realm of politics, precisely as you said in your question. It was the realm of compromise, different from the realm of the movement where you could advocate principles. And I think you can see sort of a symbiotic relationship between those two spheres, the political world of compromise and the movement. And if you see Lincoln's own trajectory, you know, he goes from being a colonizationist advocating the colonization of blacks uh, back to Africa, Mm -hmm. not because he was a racist, but because he really thought racism was too strong in the United States. And that really was a mainstream belief back then. It seems crazy now. And that never really, it didn't really work. Not too many (laughs) people moved back to Liberia. No. In fact, black and white abolitionists begin their second wave crusade in reaction to colonization, rejecting it. Right. Rejecting this notion of a lily white republic. They're already talking about black citizenship, interracial democracy. And if you look at someone like Lincoln, you can really see how he evolves from that colonization position in the 1850s during the Civil War where he moves on emancipation and then just before his death to citizenship rights for black soldiers and educated blacks. So he really evolves in his belief. You know, they say some men are born great, some have greatness thrust upon them, and some, you know, become great. And, And I think Lincoln achieved greatness by adopting towards the end of his life a lot of the abolitionist program. Now, we know or we should know Harriet Tubman, but your book points out there are dozens of others whose name belongs right aside, right alongside Harriet Tubman. Absolutely. In fact, hundreds of others. You know, I have an entire chapter on a fugitive slave abolitionist like Lagoon, um, you know, um, like James Pennington and some of these other people. uh, You know, we know of Douglas. We know of Tubman. We don't know of many of the others. Because they were... 
you know, Douglas was giving lecture tours to white people up north who wrote down these notes as opposed to, you know, living it like some of these uh, black abolitionists. Absolutely. And in fact, Douglas, in his tribute to Tubman, said, only the stars of the night are a witness to your bravery. Unlike me, who is, you know, going on the lecture circuit and has international celebrity. And what was interesting that, like Tubman, there were many white and black abolitionists who actually ventured down south at great cost to help and assist fugitive slaves. Uh, one of them actually had stamped on his hand, his name was Jonathan Walker, a white man, a sea captain, a Garrisonian abolitionist. They stamped on his hand SS for slave stealer. They branded him for assisting slaves. Uh, there were others like Calvin Fairbanks, who was imprisoned and not released until the Civil War. Many you know, African-Americans, too, who most stealthily operated in the Underground Railroad. There was this remarkable guy called John Parker, who escaped from slavery in Alabama, lived in Ohio, and then ventured down south to rescue more slaves. You know, His narrative was lost to history virtually, but yeah. it was recently published. In that, he really talks about going down south as guerrilla warfare. He calls, you know, he uses the metaphors of war to talk about rescuing slaves and getting them back in. And so there's so many like him, like John Parker, who have been lost to history. And I was sort of determined that to tell all their stories. Yeah, the I mean, Quentin Tarantino makes these fantasy movies about revenge. Make a John Parker biopic. That would be amazing. <laughs> Absolutely. There was, I, I, you know, I wrote a piece, um, I think, for the New York Times um, that sort of looked at Django Unchained. And I said, you know, that German dentist... That was not so far-fetched because there were these German 49ers who were very avidly anti-slavery, and many of them joined the abolition movement. I said, maybe he knew about this? I don't know. There's not much historical you know, truth in that movie, but, but the Germans as a whole tended to be uh, very anti-slavery. From your study of what the South Carolinians were saying to support their cause, of what the abolitionists were saying, did the pro-slavery people actually believe what they were espousing? I mean, is there a way to yeah. assess that? Because it's very self-serving. Yeah. Maybe they were self-deluded. Maybe mm-hmm. they kind of deep down. How do you not know that you know, maybe this is just the benefit of me talking in 2016, that you could not realize that humans are humans. Right. I mean, um, there were historians writing the 20th century who who could not believe that slaveholders would actually say these things, mm-hmm. you know, that they had these very so rigid views about race uh, and about enslaving labor, et cetera. And they said, you know, probably most of them were guilty and they were overcompensating yeah. by this sort of very so rigid defense of slavery. But in my research in South Carolina, particularly, which is, you know, it was, it was crazy then. <laughs> to, and like this, uh, well, no, I should say this. Uh, I've probably offended an entire state. But uh, no, but the extremists in, in yeah. South Carolina, I should say, uh, at that point were, they were very unapologetic about defending slavery. And I read their personal papers, too. So, you know, which sometimes the truth comes out there rather than the public pronouncement. And I was amazed at how fervently they believed that slavery was a positive good, uh, that this was the best solution in society to the conflict between labor and capital. This was the best solution to so-called race. Uh, they, you know, many of them actually believed in uh, the pseudoscience of race uh, and helped provide material 
for for scientific races in the 19th century. So they were true believers, and they felt that they had the Bible on their side. They were biblical fundamentalists. They, with a literal reading of the Bible, they felt that slavery existed in the Old Testament, and it was not condemned by Jesus. And there were these elaborate justifications. And then, of course, they thought they had the Constitution in their side. Again, a strict construction of the Constitution is what they advocated, and states' rights. Uh, the right of a state to to have any institution and not brook any interference from the federal government. So they had this elaborate constitutional, political, religious argument. And I ended up with my first book, The Counter-Revolution of Slavery, thinking these guys were true believers. Hmm. It's a trap of history to think that it's inevitable. But what do you think of the idea of the inevitability of abolition winning? There was this sort of understanding of American history, which you call the Whig view of mm-hmm. American history, that, that that somehow after the Declaration of Independence and Constitution, these ideas were in place and all that American history was about was an unraveling, you know, kind of a linear progress yeah. of these ideas. But if you look at American history, you realize how contested these ideas have been, uh, that, that, that there was no inevitability. I really feel that if you did not have strong opposition among, by the enslaved themselves, uh, you know, less so, you know, rebellions. There were a few rebellions that did have a major impact, uh, but more in terms of like day-to-day resistance, running away from slavery, joining the abolition movement, that if you ha- did not have this concerted opposing force, you would not have gotten rid of slavery. There was, that it would not have unfolded according to some grand plan. And in fact, what you see that the trends were going just the opposite way, the expansion of the cotton kingdom, the entrenched position of slaveholders, thanks to the three-fifths clause in the U.S. government. Uh, you know, it took a civil war and over 700,000 Americans sort of losing their lives yeah. to get rid of this very entrenched institution in American society. So I don't think it was inevitable. Uh, and that, again, made me appreciate the abolitionists a little bit more. It was an uphill battle. Manish Sinha is the author of The Slave's Cause, A History of Abolition. Thanks so much. Thank you. Hang Up and Listen, Slate's popular sports podcast, made a little less popular because of the presence of yours truly, will be live in D.C. on April 25th, Monday. Stefan Fatsis, Josh Levin, and I will be there as we bring, I'm going to read from this, their signature wit and counterintuitive takes to bear on the latest sports happenings. Look, I don't know what that means, but we will be discussing bears in sports. We'll smash together sports and current events. Look, it's a, it's a hang up and listen. If you listen to this show, there's yeah 35% chance you'll listen to that one. If you live anywhere near DC, I recommend you come out live. And for a very limited number of fans, or for fans who themselves are very limited, we're going to have a pre-show cocktail hour that'll be from 5.30 to 6.30. All three of us, if you purchase tickets, you'll get one complimentary drink beforehand and first choice of seating at the show. Doors open at 5.30 p.m. for the cocktail hour, 6.30 p.m. for the live show. If you're a Slate Plus member, you'll receive 30% off your ticket purchase. For more information or to buy tickets, please visit slate.com live. And now the spiel, partial birth coherence. Donald Trump, you going to talk about him again? Yes, yes, I am. 
But isn't there an entire podcast on Panoply that's Trump every day? And now you're Trump almost every day, too. Yeah, I know. But look at it this way. Trump's like a circus and the real circus, Ringling Brothers. They've got two units. They've got the red team and the blue team. So I think we've got more than enough material. Jacob's talking about Trump's doctors today. I'm talking about Trump's answer to an abortion question, an abortion of an answer, if you will. Anyway, Trump was talking to Chris Matthews at an MSNBC town hall. Chris Matthews has been described as an interviewer who asks very good questions and then never waits for the answer. But in this case, Matthews' impatience with the stalling and blustering served him well. Because he asked Trump, if abortion were illegalized, should women who have abortions be punished? Trump tried to answer. People in certain parts of the Republican Party and conservative Republicans would say, yes, they should be punished. How about you? Luckily, Matthews didn't allow Trump to do that thing like a sixth grader who restates the question for an unprepared essay. Many say that to kill a mockingbird shows examples of courage, but there are others who say to kill a mockingbird does not show examples of courage. This is a very serious question. Finally, Trump, unable to increase the font size or shrink the margins to qualify for the 10-page minimum, he just finally had to say it. Uh, the answer is that there has to be some form of punishment. For the woman? Yeah, there has to be some form. The sirens went off in the headquarters of the top anti-abortion organizations. That was not the right answer. What you're supposed to say is what Trump's supporter and surrogate and father of Trump advisor Sarah Huckabee, who we quoted yesterday, what Mike Huckabee told NBC. He wasn't prepared for it. It's clear that he had not thought through that whole idea of do you punish the woman? And of course you don't. And I think all of us who are pro-life, and I can't think of anybody more pro-life than me, uh, we've never said that there was some punishment that ought to be meted out to a woman who had an abortion. Uh, the whole point is redemption. Now, as much as Trump's original answer was nonsense, and thinking through the issue to indeed offer a very different answer happened today. That's nonsense, of course. The thing Trump was supposed to say is nonsense, too. Trump and the anti-abortion crowd just got their nonsense mixed up. If abortion, as per the famous constructor, is indeed murder, it's murdering babies. I mean, this is a very charged way to think about it, but I do when I try to understand the mindset of the anti-abortion activist. They think that it's not different from infanticide. They think that a fetus in the womb versus a baby out of the womb isn't that much different or isn't different at all. And they compose their ethics and their politics accordingly. I get that. There is at least some logic to that if you put aside issues of science and viability and so forth. But there's some logic to that. It's consistent. And it's also a good explanation why some arguments like it's my body will never appeal to the anti-abortion crowd, right? A mother murdering a two-day-old baby couldn't say it's my body. She couldn't get away with that. Just like a woman undergoing an abortion, these people think, shouldn't be able to get away with that either. So if you compare abortion to infanticide, you begin to understand abortion a little bit. Except in this case, where the anti-abortion activists would have you say, oh no, we'd never punish a woman who did that. What, you'd never punish a woman who committed infanticide? And in fact, 37 states have feticide laws which do criminalize killing a fetus. So this whole we wouldn't punish a mother thing, most states already do. 
The fiction of we want to pass a law equating an act with murder, but we promise to have only sympathy with the murderer, that's outlandish. Donald Trump, apparently not aware that he was required to buy into this transparent fiction, simply said what anyone who thinks it out a little, which is totally what happened with Trump, said what anyone who thinks it out a little would say. Well, yeah, if it's a crime, you got to punish the criminals. Trump, for once, said something logical. What he was supposed to do was voice the illogical. He didn't know it, but that's just not what you're supposed to say. You're supposed to assert that you hate the sin but love the sinner. Though you more than hate the sin, you want to criminalize it. And there's evidence that your love of the sinner actually equates to passing feticide laws and wanting to put them in jail. There are two good critiques to the Trump statement of punish the woman. One good critique is obvious. It's an anti-abortion stance. Being against abortion is wrong. And punishing mothers who have abortions is an obvious outgrowth to this policy that's wrong. But the other is along the lines of what John Kasich said. Speaking generally about this statement and other off-the-cuff Trump statements, Kasich said this. It is not the way uh, that a leader of the free world or the commander-in-chief of our country to be so casually talking about the use, by the way, of nuclear weapons. Uh, it just shows that, the, that, that he's really not prepared to be president of the United States. And Kasich went on to say, it appears as though when he does these events and people press him, he becomes unmoored. And then he has to spend a lot of time trying to figure out how to correct all of the mistakes he made. And I have to tell you that as commander-in-chief and leader of the free world, you don't get do-overs. That's right. No backsies for whoopsies, Mr. Trump. Maybe you should try to let the adults handle these matters. And that's it for today's show. Just producer Andrea Salenzi's house includes a shrine to Barbara Mandrell. It's dubbed the Barbaritum. Steve Lichtai, executive producer of Slate Podcast's Mance, features a hatchery for duck-billed platypuses and a wading pool for platypus-billed ducks. As chief content officer of the Panoply Network, Andy Bauer's abode has a media room. Which actually doesn't sound that extravagant, except keep in mind how plurals work. It's actually a string of six medium-sized rooms. The gist, our gingerbread house has a gingerbread guest house where gingerbread Kato Kalin lives during the winter. Oomperu, depru, du peru. Thanks for listening.